It is actually quite tough to get clear on what your non-negotiables are and potentially not so much that, but definitely what are the trade-offs that you're prepared to make because it's unlikely that any diversified fund product or frankly any single asset product if it's equities or fixed income or whatever it is, is going to perfectly satisfy your sort of set of values. Hello everybody and welcome to the NZX Opening Bell podcast. My name's James Sharp from the Origination team at The Exchange. We are recording this in early October 2023 and as I look outside I was hoping to see spring in the air and sunshine. Alas, it seems to have disappeared once again. Uh, I hope wherever everyone is listening from this morning you see some sunshine and fine weather. This week we are celebrating, acknowledging, highlighting World Investor Week and to help us with that it's a delight to welcome Paul Gregory, Executive Director of Response and Enforcement at the Financial Markets Authority. A very warm welcome to you, Paul. Morning, James. Nice to be here. Excellent. Maybe we can start with World Investor Week. So you know, clearly a, a global campaign to raise awareness of investor education and protection. In your own words, how does that campaign translate into New Zealand and indeed the Financial Markets Authority, FMA, is doing? So the New Zealand theme for World Investor Week is ethical investing, which is aiming to empower investors to confidently make investing decisions that are aligned with their values. And we, we do a lot of work about uh, confident participation in markets as, a, as sort of a general focus as far as investors go. But this is about when you build your values into that process as well, which is a, an entirely different set of considerations for when you make good investment decisions. And we do really want to get into the kind of ethical investing theme, absolutely. Maybe taking a step back. We at the exchange and many of our stakeholders are very familiar with the FMA, but I'm kind of conscious there may be some listeners out there that are unfamiliar with your organisation. So what does the FMA do, the Financial Markets Authority? What's your mandate and your maybe your role within that organisation? So we roll it up uh, to say uh, what we're aiming at here is to help New Zealand be the fairest financial sector in the world. Uh, and we're a financial markets regulator. So that means that we look at financial markets like the NZX, but also about financial services, financial products, and the consumers and the investors who use them. So I guess from an investor perspective or from a consumer perspective, uh, we do a lot of information. We do a lot of standing in their shoes. We do a lot of work, which our chair actually expresses as what he finds most satisfactory as work that is done without anybody even knowing it, that he was involved. So it is about fair, efficient and transparent financial markets and good market and consumer outcomes. Okay, fantastic. Pivoting back then to, to ethical investing. So you mentioned about investors making good decisions. So maybe expanding on that, I mean, where has this journey of ethical investing started and where do you see the landscape today? Is there still an evolution uh, taking place off into the future as well? Certainly. So I, I guess there's two perspectives on this and one is the uh, the regulatory perspective. And of course, we're a regulator. So that that that's how we sort of centre our thinking on this as far as how we do our job. And that's very much on ethics are personal. So we don't attempt to define those terms. We don't attempt to tell people what they should invest in. We don't attempt to constrain the types of companies that investment managers should invest in. But what we do say is that if you're going to use a term like responsible or ethical or ESG or green or whatever it might be, that you have to explain what you mean by that because ethics are personal and because the best way that an investor can figure out whether or not the ethics of an organisation or at least the ethics as they are manifest in an investment portfolio gels with their own ethics is to understand what is meant and then most important of all, for that explanation to be substantiated. Uh, so how do you invest? What do you invest in? 
how does that end up in a portfolio? So that that's the, the ethical investment regulatory perspective. And of course, if you take it back to the investor, then it is a lot broader than that because ethics are personal. So there's two ways this is developing, I guess. And one is that from a, a consumer choice perspective, that there's a lot of, of people who just take a look at their portfolio one day and get an ethical jump scare, or they have a vague sense of unease about what types of activities they don't want to be associated with. Uh, and so they're kind of approaching their investment activity with a, uh, I don't want to go there type perspective, uh, which might not be terribly well formed, or it might not be um, from a deeply held conviction. It's just something which they know what they don't want to invest in when they see it sitting there in their portfolio. So there's that's a big part of it. There's another smaller sector, and, and it may be growing, um, certainly if you look at the, the slow progression of people who are investing in funds that are labelled as ethical or responsible. So that's what it says on the tin. And they might have a much more fully formed idea about what they don't like. So they might have a, a clear idea about what their non-negotiables are, about potentially what the trade-offs um, are that they're prepared to make. Uh, and so that they are a smaller subset. But then it's about, well, where, however I'm coming at this, whether it's from a generalised sense of unease or from a or from a sort of a manifesto perspective of this is what I will and will not invest in, how do I find the information to figure out whether or not I'm headed in the right direction with a particular fund? And that can be quite difficult. Finding it can be quite difficult. Understanding it when you do find it can be quite difficult. And then having enough information and enough patience, frankly, because these are retail investors that we're talking about mostly, um, and and building your ethics into your investment decisions is hard. So making that linkage between whatever it is that's prompted you to look in the first place and enough information to make a confident decision is quite a difficult process. It's more difficult than it should be. uh, And investment managers as an industry um, should do better. And I guess from that perspective of the investor, would it be accurate to say it does come down to trust? So I can, I have a view of where my ethics stand, where I sit with issue a b or c do i believe and trust that this business is going to do what it says it's going to do if i invest this amount would that be accurate to say that that's right because as a regulator and and anybody in the investment industry is pretty familiar with the harm uh, that can happen over reasonably long periods of time if you're paying too much for what you get or if you're in the wrong risk setting but what I don't think a lot of work has been done into what has what is the harm over over a investment period 10 15 20 years and that's multi-generational harm too because of who inherits the investment that you have built up from your ethics having been compromised over that time you having underperformed your moral index and that that's a whole different dimension of harm and that's why it's another uh, aspect of being important why why this is done so um, but but again that is a difficult due diligence process research finds again and again and again that people can learn how to budget, for example, but it's much harder to learn how to choose and use investment products. And with KiwiSaver, for example, which is fundamentally a retirement product, uh, that that is a long horizon. Uh, And so there's a lot of work that has to go into it. People tap out early. Uh, and that that trust bit is is critical, and that's where we come in, obviously, because that's all about um, uh, misleading or, or fair dealing, as we call it. So that is the absolute crux of our focus on on this area: that that people should be able to trust what they're told, uh, particularly if they are maybe paying more for it. They're prepared to sacrifice financial returns in some in some dimension for social and environmental returns. They have to be able to trust that's what they're getting. You mentioned, um, I think you mentioned there more, more. There is more to be done. Um, is that a function of 
um, the recipients of investment, whether a business funds um, being slow to change their processes and the information they provide to paint that picture that investors need? Or is it also to do and or the complexities around what is the kind of the ethical point I'm trying to get to? And is that in the the future is necessarily uncertain and maybe the outcome might be uncertain. So yeah, I guess, how do you see that, that, that sort of manifesting stuff? Is that, is that, is that, is it true to say that's where it's complex yeah. and that's, that's the reason why much more is there to be done? Yeah. There's, there's two quite significant dimensions of complexity here. And one is what the investor brings to it, which we've talked about, which is it is actually quite tough to get clear on what you, what your non-negotiables are and, and what, and potentially not so much that, uh, but but definitely what are the trade-offs that you're prepared to make because there, it's unlikely that any diversified fund product or, frankly, any single asset product, if it's equities or fixed income or whatever it is, is going to perfectly satisfy um, your your sort of set of values. Um, but so there's there's that complexity the investor brings to it, and then there's the, the, the additional level of complexity, which is that even though there's um, there's a reasonable amount of movement towards having screened or, or climate consistent portfolios, that sort of thing, or certainly portfolios that are labelled that way, including indexes now increasingly, uh, that, that it is quite an immature, um, the industry is quite immature in that respect. And so it's it's more about, as we found in a report that we did on this, uh, which was a study of of a couple of years ago now, I think, uh, which was funds that were using ESG and, and other labels, um, that, that it, it, it wasn't about egregious, misleading statements. It was about um, fakeness. It was about imprecision, um, which, of course, also doesn't help investors to understand whether or not um, the, their set of values is a is as good a match as possible um, to the values or, or certainly to the exclusions and the investment approach of the fund that they are looking at or that they've invested in. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I know the FMA has a, a whole wealth of information uh, in terms of helping investors navigate uh, this kind of universe, but I was keen to maybe hear in your own words, someone's listening, probably the first time they've really considered looking at, at investing in anything they've got kind of definitive kind of red lines around what they'd like to invest in, what they don't like to invest in. Where do they go to first? What's what's the source of information they should really trust? Uh, Well, well, for a start, if they do have a a pretty um, uh, thorough self-examined list of what it is that they do and don't want to invest in, um, they're starting in a better place than most investors are. Okay. Um, so that's almost like an institutional investment perspective. Um, but but unlike an institutional investor who can potentially get a mandate um, oriented to what their values are through the use of segregated mandates, for example, which is a very sort of institutional um, ability, which, you know, which doesn't necessarily and won't hardly at all happen in, uh, for a retail investor, I, I think it's um, potentially uh, start with a few. Start with a few investment managers. There's there's some um, who have a reasonable profile in terms of of ESG. That, that it's not too difficult to um, to do a, a search and 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 find out who comes to the top of your search list type thing. 
Um, you can also go to comparison uh, websites like Mindful Money, for example. Mm-hmm. You can you can come to us, but obviously we're not going to uh, say this this investment manager is good and this investment sure. manager isn't. Um, but that will give you some further clues as to as to what you might like to look for. But again, you've sort of set this up as an investor who does have a fairly clear idea about what they want, uh, and so then I guess some comparison tools. Uh, there there could be some. Um, uh, uh, some uh, media coverage, for example, it, it, it then it then is much more of a uh, of a almost like a classic institutional investment search process at that point, mm-hmm. um, which demonstrates, of course, the importance of doing the work, asking yourself the questions first, mm-hmm. um, and then and then if you've got that clarity and you've and you've approached a couple of investment managers or had a look at their websites, then I think have a chat uh, or try to have a chat because. Their um, their inclination and how easy it is to talk to them is actually, um, uh, I, I think, a, an indication and an ethical indication of its own uh, in a way in terms of their transparency, in terms of their readiness to engage, because you know you, you talk to people who are genuinely passionate about this and you just can't shut them up about it, and so that and that's that that's a uh, that that indication of passion I think is a is a good signifier. Uh, of of someone who is likely to um, have a process that 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 matches what it says on the tin, or even if there's nothing on the tin, that potentially has a process that might might go some way towards um, meeting your 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 values as you want them expressed in your investments. And, and yeah, I guess the so from that point, the extent uh, the extending question, I guess, is um, and perhaps we've already touched on this, or you've already touched on this, is who gets to decide what's ethical and what's not ethical, what is there a, a body, bodies, or associations? What's the the stamp on the tin, so to speak, that I should be looking for if I was a retail investor new to this space? Yes. Yeah, so uh, obviously, it's not us. Uh, we're right. not saying what's ethical. Um, we're saying, uh, as, as again, it comes down to fair dealing. It comes to uh, the ability to trust uh, with you know a, a reasonable ability to trust and and not to be misled. Um, but then there are uh, organisations like uh, United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, uh, who do have accreditation processes um, which are quite robust, uh, and w- which isn't to say, again, from a regulatory perspective, um, that they are that they will get a regulatory seal of approval. Um, but what you can do, which is what we talk about in our regulatory sense, which is examine what is being used to substantiate these claims. And they do have quite um, sophisticated processes for this kind of thing, which isn't to say, uh, so you can sort of see what hoops do they have to go through? How does that sort of manifest itself in the portfolio that I'm considering investing in or have invested in? That's not the only way to do it, of course, because an investment manager could have done their own self-design process for exactly the same. The point is the transparency, not necessarily about what set of standards has been applied. The point is the transparency about, about what do we mean by this? How do we substantiate it? That said, um, there is quite a tailwind in terms of uh, increasingly compulsory requirements of this sort of thing. So climate-related disclosures is an example of that. So um, that is um, that obviously is a regulatory requirement. First reports land in April. Climate is a subset, a big subset of ESG-type issues or, or sort of responsible or ethical-type issues. But what it does do is require transparency. So you have to report on how you think about climate, about your strategy, about your risk management approach as an investment manager, what that translates to in terms of a footprint for your portfolio. And then, of course, over time, you get more data points, 
what your you know how you how you're doing uh, what your what your progress is what your direction of travel is on what your footprint is what you're doing about it that sort of thing is a is a piece of transparency that people who care about climate will be able to access uh, and has to meet regulatory standards so that's an example of this market um, then our colleagues at the external reporting board they're looking at broader sustainability reporting it's voluntary at this point who knows that could become compulsory as well um, and then elsewhere, I guess, if you're in a default KiwiSaver provider, those funds, they do actually have requirements that they don't invest in certain types of controversial weapons and they don't invest in certain types of fossil fuel companies. And because those are written into the instruments of appointment that they have with the minister, we as a regulator, we enforce those. So that is a rare example of where the instrument of appointment or or there is a or, um, a... Uh, a requirement that they do not invest in those things, we monitor for those and we will enforce against them if um, if necessary. So there's various things happening in the market where it shows that the direction of travel is towards more robustness, more maturity, um, more pieces of pretty robust information that investors can look at to calibrate whether or not a particular fund or a particular investment manager is right for them as far as their values are concerned. Uh, and maybe uh, just a final one on just on this, is into, you talked about... A direction of travel uh, that would imply, well, potentially imply that there is an end point where uh, that the whole market perhaps is is just m- maybe more familiar. Investors are more familiar, and then we get to a kind of a, a perhaps a more um, a stable kind of situation where everyone has that information. Would that was that is that your kind of ultimate objective? Perhaps I don't want to put words in your mouth. Or I, I think whatever tools are used to get their maturity of the market is definitely the end game. Yeah. So that yeah. there is a maturity of disclosure. Um, that you get actually more um, more comparison tools as well. So the more important this is, the more it drives capital allocation, the more the ability to compare is important. Obviously, that's what climate-related disclosures is all about. It is fundamentally a capital allocation tool. Mm. That's what it's for. And that, that's what those sorts of things should be for because you use a label um, – and then you can substantiate it and it's robust. That is a point of differentiation and that's where you need to get to, right? Because um, it needs to be, if you use the label, um, that there is uh, there is a, a risk for misusing the label and it's not risk-free to not be able to substantiate it because otherwise everybody just does it and there's no differentiation. So you don't know. You're in a position of not knowing whether your values are served, investor, investment manager A, investment manager B. Um and yes, standards can can influence that. And there are there's international movement as well around international standards for climate reporting and others, uh, nature type reporting, that sort of thing, biodiversity. Uh, and then there's uh, work in the background here on on taxonomy, for example. So that that can be helpful too, because it sort of says if you're going to use these labels, these are the minimum standards that you should meet. Um, other other jurisdictions have that. Some of them are compulsory. Um, and those can be helpful. And then there are arguments against that from others, um, from investment managers would say, well, we've got a really robust way of doing climate or of whatever it might be, of social housing or whatever it is. It doesn't actually fit with this taxonomy, so you're stifling innovation. So there's different views on this, um, and, and that, again, is another reason why we as a regulator focus on we're not going to tell you what is good and what's not, but um, in terms of what you invest in and, and what, what you don't invest in, but again, transparency, substantiation, whatever it is that you're talking about. Fantastic. No, it's um, cl- clearly a, a, a quite a you know, large kind of universe out there. But um, it's good to hear that there's um, yeah, obviously a direction of travel and a, a cl- obviously a very clear framework um, of 
I guess facilitating that necessary transparent transparency, enabling people to make good decisions about where they where they invest their money. So that's you know it's great to hear. Um, I do want to maybe just pivot slightly back away um, to yourself, actually, Paul. So um, if I may, um, now uh, in terms of your career, you know, previously you worked at funds management businesses in uh, New Zealand, uh, ends a superannuation uh, fund, uh, amongst others. Um, I guess uh, just interested to hear about your um, uh, very, very start of your kind of career, your motivations to move into the world of of finance and then perhaps what you've learned along the way and indeed into your sort of decision to move to the to the FMA as well I mean keen, keen to hear about your sort of personal experiences and lessons learned over the years um so it's it, so I started off as a journalist um like a daily newspaper journalist not not business you know crime courts that kind of stuff um so I did that for a while uh so I've, I've kind of had three strands to my um to my career um which is sort of interwoven so journalism um being involved in investing uh and uh, and regulation uh so and with with sort of media and comms in there as well so that i guess it's sort of three innate aptitudes that sort of underpin all of them and, I, and i've i've been quite lucky with some quite imaginative people who have said well why don't you have a go at this and and then allowed me to do that super funds are a very good example of that i shifted from comms into into investing there uh, but it's about um i really like um i can talk to anybody um i uh, like analyzing things uh, and i like um being able to um to use a communication capability to help people make good decisions. Um, and if that's in the service of something which has real impact, even better. So I- impact is really what it's about. Um, I guess as a journalist, you can tell a story that has impact. Um, then uh, certainly at the FMA, there's the ability to have impact, including multi-generational impact, whether the people know that you've been involved or not. And then obviously Superfund is a, is a very good example of multi-generational impact as well. So so that, that's where it all sort of boils down to um, the ability to have some impact. Oh, fantastic. Um, no, it's good It's good to hear, I guess, when we uh, people come on this podcast about especially those individuals that have had different sort of strings to the bow over the years. So I'm sure there's many people listening that might be in a certain sector or industry that, that might not have considered that actually they can move to another sort of sector, finance being one of them. Um, so great to hear. Um, do you want to end with maybe just a bit of a quick fire round, if I may, Paul, um, the all important uh, information we need from you? Um, is threefold. Um, so, um, do you have a favourite book or podcast? Uh, so, the book that I I like is called Range by a guy called David Epstein, which is about generalists. Have, you know, given what I've just been talking about, so potentially that's confirmation bias on my part. On my part, uh, and and there's a really good podcast called Going Long, um, which is about long term investing, uh, and that's that has some really um, good uh, good insights into into the um, simple but not easy disciplines uh, of long-term investing and, and they have some you know really good speakers on there oh great well, i've written that one down that's great um do you have a favorite quote uh so there's one by a guy who used to be a journalist and a satirist called ambrose bears um which is uh that um what does he say uh that patience is a minor form of form of despair disguised as a virtue very nice i like that one um, and then lastly, um, best piece of advice you ever received, Paul? 
Uh, it, it, it really goes back to the impact bit, which is um, that if you're the sort of person uh, as I as I am who um, who likes to get stuck into work um, and that that occupies time, and obviously that's a trade-off decision itself as to where you're not spending your time, um, that you have to agree or at least not disagree, but it's better if you do agree with the premise of the organisation that you're working for because in service of that, um, the impact that you're trying to have, you it's best if you agree with the premise. Absolutely. Uh, what great advice that is. Um, Paul, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for your insights um, and all the best with, you know, your kind of future endeavours at the FMA in terms of the ethical investing and, and, and moving that forward. Um, so thanks very much, Paul, and uh, see you again soon. Yeah, thank you. And it's been good to speak to you, James. Thanks. The information provided in this podcast is a guide and is intended for general information purposes only. The information is not investment advice. The information should not be relied upon as a substitute for detailed advice from a professional advisor. The podcast may contain opinions or forward-looking statements and actual results may vary from what is expressed in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of NZX. NZX Limited is not liable for any loss suffered through relying on the information in this podcast. NZX makes no warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information in this podcast. All intellectual property rights in the content of this podcast are owned or used under license by NZX and NZX's written consent is required to use, redistribute or reproduce the content or use it to create other works.